0: If you have your Bibles with you this morning, there are two places that I invite you to take them and to turn to. And we want to begin this morning in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, if you would please just turn to Genesis chapter one. And then in just a moment, the Lord willing, we'll turn to the book of the Song of Solomon. Would you bow with me please for a moment of prayer? Lord Jesus, once again, I bow before you before we begin this message today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will, as I've prayed earlier, take full control of me today, take control of my body. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will continue to fill me with your presence and with your power that I might be faithful in lifting up Jesus to our people today. I pray that you'll take control of my mind, that you will block the devil from putting any kind of thought that would be negative or contrary to your word and put, Holy Spirit, only those things that are good and wholesome and positive into my mind, that I might think the thoughts that you want me to have. And then to take control of my mouth, my tongue, the words that I speak, that they may not just be my words, but that they would be your words. They didn't come today to hear my opinion and what I thought about whatever the matter might be. But we want to know what your holy word says. And I just pray that uh, you'll take control of my mouth and that I will speak the truth as it is revealed in your holy scripture. May you be honored and exalted today. You are our God. Your son is our savior and the Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide May we be submissive to all three is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The recent uh, phono- uh, pornographic movie, Fifty Shades of Grey, remind us once again of the wrong message that is being given to our society as to the proper use of a God-given gift such as love and romance and marriage and sex. As I was thinking about this message today, I was interested to discover what the two leading actors of the Fifty Shades of Grey movie had to say about the movie that they were participating in. The male actor, Jamie Dorman, who plays the lead role male in the movie, became a dad during the filming and the making of the film Fifty Shades of Grey. He is uh, recorded as having said, I don't want my daughter to see the movie. He told that to Time Magazine. But I can't stop her from seeing it someday. I I will, however, do everything within my power that she won't. But I know the possibility is that she will. Well, the answer to that question about not wanting the daughter to see his movie could have been answered a couple of years ago. He could have said, I just won't make such a movie. That would have been the better way. It's interesting, too, what uh, Jamie Dorman's wife, Amelia, had to say. She said that she had not seen the movie and would feel very uncomfortable watching it. Uh, Well, I, I think I can understand that. I certainly wouldn't want to watch my wife in the arms of another man. And I certainly don't think that she would enjoy seeing me in the arms of another woman. And then the actress, Dakota Johnson, who plays the lead female in the movie has said, I don't want my family to see the movie because it's inappropriate. (laughs) Here is the very actress herself who plays the lead role in the movie saying, a movie that I have just made is inappropriate. Inappropriate, isn't that interesting? Farrell Foster, the director of ethics and justice for the Texas Baptist Christian Life Commission, wrote this. This is a sinful world and we are all sinners. This good gift from God can be misused. And this fictional Fifty Shades story parades such misuse. On time, ultimately, he says, Fifty Shades of Grey is about self-gratification, Anyone old enough to see this movie will realize that it's not about love. It's just about sex. But it's as a shallow, empty, and hurtful version of the sex that God intended. You know, when our nation was attacked uh, by the terrorists on 9-11, shortly after that, our government established a, a new department called the Homeland Security Department. Its purpose was to protect the borders of our wonderful country from evil fanatics who wanted to harm American citizens by any means possible. One of the greatest fears is that terrorists might explode what's called a dirty bomb. That is a conventional explosive package with uh, radioactive materials in some major city of America. But there's another enemy more insidious than political terrorism that you face as an individual, and especially as a parent if you have children. It's not a threat with a dirty bomb, but a threat from dirty pictures, dirty websites, dirty movies, and dirty television. Well, does God have anything to say about love, and sex, and marriage, and romance? Yes, he does. What God has wanted us to understand from the very beginning of time and the creation of the first man and woman about love and romance and marriage and sex is profoundly, breathtakingly beautiful. In his powerful paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, Eugene Peterson puts Hebrews 13, 4 this way. Honor marriage. Guard the sacredness of sexual intimacy between wife and husband God draws a firm line against casual and illicit sex. The two words honor marriage means to protect it and hold it highly valuable. The words illicit sex refers to all sexual activity beyond uh, what is natural within the context of a husband and a wife. Now, when we look in a few moments at uh, Proverbs chapter 4, and that's where we'll be, Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon, that's why it's named after him. But that's not the only place where he had anything at all to say about sexual purity and sexual immorality. You don't have the time to turn to it because it's a rather lengthy passage, but write in your notes if you're making notes, Proverbs chapter five, Proverbs chapter five, and let me read through it quickly from the New Living Translation And this is the advice of a father to his son to stay away from an immoral woman, a prostitute. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen carefully to my wise counsel. Then you will show discernment and your lips will express what you've learned. For the lips of an immoral woman are as sweet as honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as poison and as dangerous as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave for she cares nothing about the path to life. She staggers down a crooked trail and doesn't realize it. So now, my son, listen to me. Never stray from what I am about to say. Stay away from her. Don't go near the door of her house. If you do, you will lose your honor and will lose to merciless people all you have achieved. Strangers will consume your wealth and someone else will enjoy the fruit of your labor. In the end, you will groan in anguish with diseases when it consumes your body. In other words, you can get an infection and a disease by having a a sexual relationship with an immoral person because they have sexual relationships with other people. And if you have a sexual relationship with an immoral woman, a prostitute, you not only have a sexual relationship with her, but you have an exposure to all of the other sexual relationships she has had with other men. And if they have had diseases, then she has it and she's gonna pass it on to you. That's what he's saying. You will say how I hated discipline. If only I had not ignored all the warnings. Oh, why didn't I listen to my teachers? Why didn't I pay attention to my instructor? I have come to the brink of utter ruin and now I must face public disgrace. Listen to what he says to his son. Drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the street having sex with just such a person? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son? Captivated, my son, by an immoral woman or fondle the breast of a promiscuous woman. For the Lord sees clearly what a man does, examining every path he takes. An evil man is held captive by his own sins. There are ropes that catch and hold him. He will die for the lack of self-control. He will be lost because of his great foolishness. Well... Once upon a time, there was a man who visited a community of people who lived by a river. As evening approached, he was invited to sit down by the river and enjoy a cool beverage and then dinner with the, and, uh, and dinner with the people. While they are calmly and pleasantly waiting and enjoying the fellowship and the food, a 14-foot crocodile suddenly came up out of the river, chopped off the arm of the man sitting closest to the riverbank and then slipped silently back into the dark waters. The people were alarmed and shocked, but they quickly recomposed themselves. Those closest to the man bandaged him up the best they could and transported him to a local medical assistance. Then they resumed their eating and drinking and conversation, picking up right where they had left off before the incident took place. The man who was visiting was horrified that the evening continued as if nothing else had happened. Each time he tried to mention the tragic and violent act, someone in the group quickly changed the subject. He made one final attempt to bring the incident to discussion. A man just lost his arm to an enormous crocodile that came right up out of the water suddenly. Did you see that or was I just imagining it? Someone in the group replied, yes, we saw what happened. A number of people are attacked every year in our community by crocodiles. The man did looked look closer at the group, and sure enough, he spotted people who were missing hands and feet and arms and legs and even an ear. Can't you do anything at all about the crocodiles, he asked. And another person in the group replied with embarrassment, clearly written on his face, it is impolite in our culture to talk about crocodiles, The visitor to the community was stunned into bewildered silence. You know, at times I feel as that man did when I see how the church deals with sex. So many people within the body of Christ seem to be wounded and maimed emotionally and psychologically by issues and problems related to sexual intimacy, and yet nobody in the church wants to discuss the problems. Sex is off-limits, Something we just don't talk about uh, in polite company, much less the holy community of Christian people. But where do most people learn about sex? Where'd you learn about it? If you have children, where do you think they're gonna learn about it? Are they gonna go to some friend's house and read a Playboy magazine? Are they gonna go on the internet? Are they going to go to school and let some of their friends tell them about it? Or are they going to stand in the restroom at a service station somewhere and see something that somebody has scrawled on the wall? And it's not just for teenagers, folks. If you don't think that your children aren't aware of it, you're sticking your head in a hole somewhere. I have two grandsons. I have seven grandchildren, five girls and two boys. My oldest grandson is in the second grade. He loves to read. I mean, he's always, I'm so proud of him. He's always got a book in his hand, he's reading. Some friend of his in the second grade gave him a book to read. He brought it home because he couldn't understand some of the words in the book about a man having sex with another man. This is in the second grade, folks. This isn't teenagers, this isn't in the college. This is in the second grade of public school. And of course, uh, my daughter, his, his mother tried to explain to him that you know, that was not proper and he took the book away from her and turned it into the teacher and you know, they, they got it removed out of the classroom. But it happens. It happens whether you're eight or nine or 19 or 90 or whatever. You know, it was and it's God's will for a husband and wife to enjoy themselves in sexual intimacy. Look in your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, and verse 31. Genesis 1, 26, 28, and 31. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He didn't create them male and male or female and female. He created them male and female. And God blessed them and God said to who? To them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then in verse 31, it says God saw all that he had made and said that it was very good. Very good. But notice what he says in verse 28. God said to the male and female, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Well, if, if a man and a woman are going to be fruitful and multiply, how are they going to do that? Through sexual intimacy. Through sexual intimacy. Uh, in, in spite of what your folks may have told you if you're, when you were a child or your children, you didn't... You didn't uh, They didn't find you under a rock. They they didn't find you in the mulberry bush. The stork didn't bring you to them. If you haven't heard it lately, the stork is dead. Some of you didn't even know he was sick. But the stork is dead. You, You weren't brought to your, every person in this room, in the choir, in the lower auditorium, in the balcony. You know how you got here? Sex. That's how you got here. Your mom and dad had sexual intimacy and your mother conceived you. How did you get your children? Did you go to Walmart and find them on aisle three? If you have more than one child, if you have two or multiple children, do you you go to Costco or Sam's and find them there in bulk form? You got your children the same way your mom and dad got you through a sexual relationship, sexual intimacy. But oh, that's a crocodile that keeps coming back, and we don't want we don't want you know, to bring up. It's kind of like the old proverbial elephant in the, bil- in the room. There's an elephant in the room. Everybody knows it's there, but nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to admit it. Well, whether we want to admit it or not and whether you realize it or not, your children are going to be told about it. They're going to learn about it. And I would think you would want them, if they're going to learn about it, to learn about it in the proper way. Look at Genesis chapter two, verse 20 through 25. Genesis two, 20 through 25. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took from his ribs and closed up the flesh at the place and the Lord God fashioned from that rib a woman which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man and the man said, whoopee. (laughs) Wow. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now notice verse 24 and 25. For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And notice verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, our society has become so vulgar when it comes to sexual parts of the body and sexuality that we are embarrassed to talk about it. And yet it says of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, that they were naked. They knew they were naked, but they were not ashamed. Why? Because that's the way God made us. That's the way God made us. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1. Genesis four verse one begins saying in the King James version, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. Now the word knew, K-N-E-W is a Hebrew uh, idiom that is referring to sexual intimacy, sexual intercourse. The King James version uses the word knew, the new American standard that, that I read from uses the words had relations. The other translation, uh, Holman Christian Study Bible uses the terms was intimate. The New Living Translation says they had sexual relations. The Amplified Bible says that she became pregnant. Uh, And the Jerusalem Bible says uh, that uh, she also uses the term having become pregnant. So the Bible is very clear from the beginning that God created the idea of sex and marriage and procreation and has commanded man to multiply and plenish the earth and then stepped back and looked at it and said, it's very good, very good. So you can see that sex was God's idea in the beginning. So now let's turn to the Song of Solomon and let's get with chapter four. Chapter four, uh, we're skipping over in the first three chapters. We don't have the time to look at all of those chapters without it being a long series. Uh, But he's been talking in the first three chapters about courtship and about respecting one another and, and so forth. But now when you come to chapter four, they're married. And chapter four describes what happens with them On the night of their honeymoon. (laughs) And you know, talking about an alligator that we don't want to talk about or an elephant in the room, you know, when a couple get married and they come running out of the church and they get in their car and everybody throws rice on them and they go driving off, nobody likes to talk about it, but what are they going to do? Watch TV? I doubt it. They're going to have sex. And hopefully it will be for the first time. So the Song of Solomon is the Bible's case study of a plan for all seasons, courting, dating, engaging, the wedding, and life together for the rest of their lives. There are two main characters in the Song of Solomon. One is Solomon himself, he's the king. And then there is this Shumanite woman called Shulamith, Shulamith is a country girl. <laughs> He's the king. He's in the city. Of course, he was a country boy himself. He raised sheep and tended to the sheep. But Shulamith is a country girl. Uh, we'll see it in a moment. Uh, she was given the responsibility of looking after some of the flock. So there are four basic ideas that in the moments that we have, I've got 15 minutes to talk about this. So uh, hang on, Okay. First of all, there is the preparation for sexual intimacy. The first seven verses of chapter four is about the preparation for intimacy. So in preparing for intimacy, there are certain things that the wife wants to hear and certain things that the husband wants to see, okay? Notice in verse 1, in verse 1 the wife is prepared to hear her husband say this and Solomon says to Shumaleth, how beautiful you are, my darling. He says it again in verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my darling. He's complimenting her. He's saying the words that she wants to hear. This is not the first time when they were courting. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 15. In chapter one in verse 15, he says, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. And then in chapter four, not only in verse one, but look at verse nine and 10. Verse nine and 10, he says, come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from uh, from Lebanon. And then in verse uh, nine, he says, you have made my heart beat faster and faster. Verse 10, how beautiful is your love my sister, my bride. Chapter seven and verse six, he says, how beautiful and how delightful you are, my love with all your charm. Guys, if you haven't learned that lesson yet, your wife, man, your girlfriend wants to hear you say that she's beautiful and that you love her. And Solomon had no problem when it came to eloquence. Later on in verse seven of chapter four, He says to her, you are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. Why, you're the perfect bride. I think here, and we'll see in a moment, that he's referring to her virginity, that she has preserved and kept herself pure until she married the man she loves. You know, men are designed by God in such a way that when the time comes, they're more than ready to take care of business. Unfortunately, men tend not to realize that the wife is not as emotionally prepared. The husband is eager and excited. His wife is hesitant and needs the grace of time. Gary Smalley wrote, men are microwaves, women are (laughs) crockpots. A man's ready to have sex anytime. But man, the woman needs, needs some time to heat up, okay? So your wife is is prepared to what you have to say. But notice your husband is prepared by what he sees. As men, we don't always listen very well, but there's nothing wrong with our eyesight. And notice how visual these verses become. This is a man on his wedding night, and you can be more than certain that his eyes are wide open, and he takes inventory of all the beauty that he sees. He begins with her eyes. Now in those days as still to this very day in certain parts of the world, women wear veils over their faces where you can only see their eyes. This goes back to their conviction that only a husband should be able to look upon the total physical beauty of his wife and it's not for other men. And so she wears a veil. And her, her face is covered at this point. Now I think it's a a veil that is, is, you can see through it. This is their wedding night now. She's not dressed in pajamas, okay? She's dressed in a see-through blouse or gown or whatever you girls wear on your wedding night. But he sees her eyes, and he says, your eyes are like doves. I think what he's referring to here is purity. That a dove stands for purity and loyalty and peacefulness. So the veil highlights her eyes. Her eyes are the windows of her soul. Eyes are the most expressive feature that we have. Solomon suggests that her eyes shine right through the veil. There is a twinkle in her eyes. The next thing that he looks at is her hair. Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. Now, guys, don't call your wife a goat. (laughs) You may get the boot, okay? Okay? Solomon reaches for her face and softly removes her veil and her hair tumbles freely about her shoulders. Solomon is referring to the scene often observed in the evenings on the slope of Mount Gilead when the shepherds brought their goats down the mountain at the end of the day as the sun is setting. The goats had long, beautiful black wool and Solomon is saying that tranquil peaceful view is what I see in your hair. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 15 that if a woman has long hair it is a glory to her. So a woman's hair is extremely important. That's where she gets her glory. That's why you should always support her going to the beauty parlor <laughs> and getting her hair fixed. Then he looks at her teeth, verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among has lost her young. In other words, guys, he's saying, before you get married, check out her teeth. Make sure she's got them, okay? Well, you know, in those days, they didn't have dental hygiene and and people that, you know, to floss your teeth or to go to the dentist, however, often. And, 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 and so, oftentimes, they had some missing teeth. Well, they didn't have them. That's why they were missing, I guess. Uh, but I think what he's saying here is that she has a beautiful smile. He has the, the image of these goats having been sheared. Now, all through the season, they have wool on themselves, and, and the wool becomes dirty and black. But then they shear them. And when they shear the sheep, they become sparkling white. So he is saying, your teeth are, are, are bright and, and they're beautiful. And you have a beautiful smile. A beautiful smile. And the twins, I didn't realize this, but the, the, did you know that the, the teeth in your mouth have twins? You've got one set on one side, another set on the other side. That's identical. So you've got twin teeth in your mouth if you've got your teeth. And so he's saying that, that your, your, your teeth are, are like twins. They're, they're all there. They're all complete. You've not lost any of them. You've taken care of yourself, he's saying. And then her lips. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. It's generally felt that Schumann used some form of lip coloring. And, of course, red was their natural color. Cosmetics are no modern Convenience. The color scar- scarlet is mentioned over fifty-two times in the Bible, and scarlet lips complements a tanned, tanned comp- complexion. If you look at chapter one and verse five, uh, 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 Shulamith says, "I am black but lovely." Now she was she was uh, not not a black person as we think of black person today. Uh, go on to what the rest of the verse says. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of kedar like the curtains of Solomon. But in chapter one and verse six, she says, do not stare at me because I am dark for the sun has burned me. So she, she's she been keeping sheep. Men were the only ones who did that. She had older brothers and her older brothers made her go out and tend to the sheep. She stayed out in the sun all day. And the sun had baked her skin to the point that she was dark, very deep tanned. Although she uses the term black, but she was beautiful. Number five, her mouth. Your mouth is lovely, he says. This is kissing talk. Guys, kissing talk. Man, I love to kiss you because your mouth is lovely. Your lips are lovely. Someone has suggested, however, that it's not only her lips, but the words that she speaks. That she speaks, you know, respectfully. She uh, Proverbs thirty-one says of the virtuous woman: she opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongues. So she he, she she speaks. Lovingly and, and, and compliments her husband and so she has beautiful speech coming out of her mouth. Her temples, look at verse three. Your temples or cheeks are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Pomegranate was red and you slice it in two and it was red and oftentimes they would use it to, to put it on their cheeks so that they would have a red color. So women's cheeks are important. Ask any woman who's skilled in cosmetics. That's why they spend an hour at a time in a in front of a mirror trying to make themselves more beautiful than they already are the cheek is thought to be the gentlest part of the whole female body the she can tell us something of a person's emotions when we observe a blush or when the cheek loses its color during fear or aggression the blush in particular has long been viewed as a sign of innocence in sexual matters a token of virginity notice her neck Your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the round shields of the mighty men. She has a long neck, not super long, but she has a long neck and it's strong. And I think Solomon, being not only the wisest man who ever lived, but the wealthiest man who ever lived, adorned her body with all kinds of jewelry, earrings, necklaces, you name it. She was adorned in a proper way, in a wholesome way with jewelry. And he looks at her neck. She knows, he knows that she's a strong person. She's a beautiful person. But as beautiful as the jewelry is, it's not as beautiful as her spirit and her character is. And then he comes to the eighth one, and that's her breast. Look at verse five. Your breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies. Now, given the manner in which our culture has vulgarized sexuality by reducing it to the quest for looking for the perfect body parts, this section is more delicate for today's readers. But for Solomon and his time, it was entirely proper, especially, of course, in the context of a wedding night. Remember, this is their honeymoon, and this is the first time that he has seen her unclothed. The image that Solomon is using is one of grace and softness, twin fawns. He's talking about baby deer. They're n- deer. Baby deers are nimble animals, easily frightened and rapid to flee. When we encounter young deer in a park, we are in awe of their grace and we would love to caress them, but know that one hasty move will cause them to scamper away. And so in much the same way, Solomon wants to be gentle with a loving but apprehensive wife. As a man with physical drives, he feels a sense of urgency, but for her sake, he is soft and soothing with her, using words that really don't force her. Men can learn a great deal from this example. We certainly do reap what we sow, even in the bedroom. Speak to your wife in the language that she understands, loving and appreciative tones, and her own passion will kindle into flame. Approach her selfishly, demand that you have your rights because she belongs to you and you need your needs and uh, met and, and you'll, you'll drive her away, you'll drive her away. And so Solomon expresses his love for her. Solomon looks forward to every enjoyable evening, a very enjoyable evening and sleep isn't going to play a part of it. The reference to myrrh uh, and frankincense reminds us that he is a wealthy man surrounded by the finer things in life But the finest of all to him cannot be brought or bought for any amount of money. The evening of passionate love is priceless for him. So time and tenderness, it isn't selfish but dedicated to the pleasures of a partner. It isn't forceful but gentle and adoring. They're prepared for sex. Quickly, let's go to the second part, anticipating sexual intimacy. Notice in the first seven verses, he were, uses the personal pronoun you, but now beginning with verse eight, he uses the word my, my. Look at it in chapter four, verse eight. He calls her my bride. Verse nine, my bride. Verse 10, my bride. Verse 11, my bride. Verse 12, my bride. Verse Chapter five, verse one, my bride. So it's no longer you, you. It's, it's, it's my, we, you know, we belong to one another. Listen to what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 7, 4. The wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his wife uh, over his body but the wife does. I belong to my wife, she belongs to me. You belong to your husband, you belong to your wife. And your body being the temple of the Holy Spirit, likewise belongs to your companion. And Solomon is telling his wife from now on, I am devoting myself to you to satisfy your needs, not just mine. And notice beginning with verse 9 through 11, he talks about the expression of his intimacy. He communicates how he feels. Notice it in verse 9, he says, You have made my heart beat faster. <laughs> Man, he's excited. One translation renders the word ravishes. The Hebrew word literally means to steal. And what he's saying to Shulamith is, You have stolen my heart. I'm in love with you. And, you know, five times in, in these verses uh, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 8 he uses the term my sister. Now, Linda said she didn't want to be called my sister, so I don't call her my sister. I call her my love, my dove. But anyway, the term is often used in, in, in a sense of respect and awe and admiration and affection. Number three, appreciating sexual intimacy, beginning with verse 12. Finally, right here in the midst of our Bible, the Bible that I own and the Bible that you have, we come to the main event of the evening, the consummation of their relationship. In verse 12, Solomon speaks of his wife's virginity. She is a virgin. And in verse 12, he says, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring that is sealed up. What he is saying here is that she has preserved herself and saved herself for her husband. She is a virgin. She has not had any sexual relationship with anybody else. This will be her first time. And I think this has a tremendous message to our people today, to you, to your children, your teenagers, and the teenagers of our city. If you don't think your children know anything at all about sex, where have you been? It's all over the place. You cannot watch a television program and some of the cleanest, purest, decent television programs are okay and you're sitting there watching it and enjoying it and all of a sudden a commercial comes on and they're talking about Viagra and Cialis. What is that? It's a performance enhancing drug that enables a man to perform his duty to his wife. And here you have an attractive woman saying, you know, it shouldn't be a problem, there's all kinds of remedies to help you. And it's not just for the middle-aged or the teenagers, it's senior adults too. Have you seen the latest Taco Bell commercial? I was sitting one night watching television and this commercial comes on, it's Taco Bell. And and they're promoting a new sandwich. And it shows this elderly couple sitting in the front seat of their cars enjoying this sandwich and all of the sudden, the wife turns over at her husband and raises up her blouse Puts it back down and turns around and he, he looks like that, you know, and then he grins. <laughs> this is an elderly couple, folks. I'm not, you know, I, I didn't go by, I didn't go to Taco Bell. Okay? But it's everywhere, everywhere. And you're going to be sitting there and, and you know, it, it's, well, intimacy, he said. <laughs> Shulamith has saved herself. For me and he appreciates it and then we come to the satisfaction of sexual intimacy expressing a desire notice in verse 16 in verse 16 this is a, a, an appropriate poetic way of her saying that she wants Solomon to come into her to have sexual intimacy sexual intercourse with her This isn't the Bible, folks. You know, we say the Bible is divinely inspired, except when it comes to this part. No. This was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit for Solomon to write it. There is nothing in the Song of Solomon of which we should be embarrassed or ashamed of. This is God's word, folks. This is what God has to say about sex that it is a good thing as long as it's practiced between a husband and a wife. We often use man and a woman, but nowadays it, I try to limit my conversation to a husband and wife because there are a lot of men and women who have sexual relationships and they're not married to each other. And so, in the biblical concept, the way God intends it to be is between a, a, a husband and a wife. And so, in verse sixteen, on his, their wedding night, she invites him to come into her for sexual intimacy. Awake, old North Wind, and come, wind of the south, make my garden breathe and fragrance, uh, breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad. Uh, may my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. And so she just makes herself available to him. The north wind brings clear weather and removes clouds. The south wind brings warmth and nourishment and moisture. And when they blow across a garden, it causes growth. And so she's inviting him to come and feel his pleasure. Now in chapter five and verse one, he expresses gratitude and admits that he's done what she's invited him to do. You know, Solomon just kind of closes the door between verse 16 and chapter five and verse one because what happens in verse 16 before you get to verse one of chapter five is that intimate thing that exists only between a husband and wife. So we respect it. So verse one of chapter five, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. So he's admitting here that he has done exactly what he has been invited by his wife to do. He has consummated the act. Now in conclusion, and I must finish here, the latter part of verse 16, you see uh, those, uh, excuse me, verse one of chapter five. You see those those, uh, last words where it says, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe but deeply, O lovers. Now who's saying that? Uh, well, it's not Solomon saying it to her. It's not her saying it to him. Uh, their friends are not there. <laughs> Mama didn't go along with them on the honeymoon. So the parents aren't there. The friends are not there. Who is this that's talking at the end of verse one? Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. I think it's God. I think this is the Lord putting his stamp of approval on the sexual relationship between a husband and his wife and he puts his stamp of approval on that and God says, eat, friends, drink and imbib deeply, old oh lovers, it's the way I want you to do it. It's the way that I intended for you to do it. It's God who is speaking here. Here at the core of sexuality, the voice of God can be heard. These are the words of God, the creator of sex and sexuality. God is expressing his blessings, his delight in our delight. He endorses the pleasure between a husband and his wife because it comes to us courtesy of his creative acts. Go back to Genesis, he created male and female, and he said, multiply and replenish the earth. And Adam knew his wife, had relationships with her. God looked at creation and said, It's very good. And the Bible says in the book of James that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. God put his stamp of approval on it and said, enjoy yourself. And there's nothing perverted, there's nothing vulgar about it, and the world needs to hear that message. That sex is godly, that sex is reverent, it is to be respected and enjoyed in the relationship of a husband and a wife. There is no, you know, there's no gift from God that cannot be twist, twisted by the evil one. And the devil is having a heyday through pornography. What a tragedy when we allow the enemy to keep us from realizing the essential goodness of such a fundamental foundational gift of life. Sex is a God-given gift. Turns out, don't you think it's, it's fantastic that we, we've got the best sex manual in all the world right here. It's been there all along. I bet you're going to start reading it now, won't you? (laughs) I've been telling you now for 34 years, you need to read your Bible. finds all kinds of things in there. And aren't you sorry that you haven't discovered it sooner? The secret of sexual intimacy is now yours, but it's for a limited time only. The offer runs out at the end of your life because when we get to heaven, there's not going to be a sexual relationship as we know it here. Quickly now, let me close and I'm I'm through. The Apostle Paul uses the relationship between a husband and his wife to illustrate the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 22, this is what the Apostle Paul said. Wives, be subject to your own husband as to the Lord For the husband is the head of the wife As Christ also is the head of the church He himself being the savior of the body But as the church is subject to Christ So also the wife ought to be subject to her husbands in everything Husbands, love your wives Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall come to become one flesh. The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects and reverence her husband. So it's no accident, folk, that God would take the most beautiful, the most wholesome, the most reverent example of sexual purity between a husband and a wife, and Paul would say, you have an intimate relationship with Christ. You know, to, to be married means that you are in one another in a sexual relationship. The Bible says in the book of Colossians that you are in Christ. Christ is in you. As a child of God who has been born again, you have a personal Intimate relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. And the same thing that Paul was saying to the man and the woman, be submissive to one another, respect one another, love one another, obey one another. We are to do the same in our relationship to God through Christ. We are to be submissive to Jesus. We are to be obedient to him. We are to love him. We are to respect him. We are to hold him in awe. And we are to obey him. How many times have I, in the times that I've shared with you from this pulpit, used the illustration of a wedding ceremony in which a man and a woman stands before me or for any preacher and and say, do you take this woman to be your wife? Do you take this man to be your husband? And in doing so, I've reminded you that what you're saying when you take those wedding vows, as a man, I am saying I'm closing the door to all other women. I now... I'm committed to this one person for life. My wife says, I'm closing the door to all other men. I don't want to live with other men. I don't want to have a relationship with other men. My commitment is to my husband. We'll be one from this day forth, separated only by death. By death. So I ask you in closing have you entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Does he live in you? Do you live in him? Have you repented of your sins? Have you prayed for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you accepted Christ's death on the cross as atonement for your sins? Have you prayed and have you asked Jesus to come into your life? Have you made a personal commitment of yourself to Jesus Christ? Well, if not, we're going to give a hymn of invitation. Andre, if you'd come now, please. And if there's anyone here today who's never made such a commitment to Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Not only your Savior, but your Lord. Make a commitment to Him. Invited Him to end your life to take over. you submissive to Him. If you've never been saved or born again, then this is the time for you to make a public decision for it. Maybe you're a Christian already. You know the Lord. You're looking for a church home. Then come. We welcome you in Christ's name. So let's all stand, please, and you come.